for the rest of us that are here this morning. Uh, please turn with me to Acts 5. We're going to pick up where we left off. Um, we're going to be in Acts 5, verses 17 through 42. And once again, good morning. Welcome to Wildlife Baptist Church. It's really good to be able to start seeing more people uh, that, that I haven't even met yet. Uh, so welcome. Uh, for those of you, this is your first Sunday back. It's good to see you guys. And uh, for those of us that are joining online, welcome. This morning, we're going to be covering kind of a large section of chapter 5. And in order for it to be kind of beneficial for us this morning, even though it's long, we're going to read this whole text in its entirety before we dive into it. But here's what I want you guys to do. As we're reading, I want you to pay attention to something kind of striking. And it's the joy of this church. We're going to read through a really, really troubling time that should have devastated the church. But I want you to pay attention to their response. So again, follow along with me. We're going to be in Acts chapter 5, starting in verse 17 through the end of the chapter. We're going to start with the reading of God's word. Verse 17 says, But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sat, or sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. So they returned and reported, we found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had them brought, they set them before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charge you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers Raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, 
held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Thudius rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400 joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the consensus, or in the census and drew away people, some people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat him, or they beat them, and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Now pay attention to this part. Verse 41. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not stop ceasing teaching and preaching that Christ is Jesus. Please pray with me. Dear God, we confess again that it is only through the blood of Jesus shed on the cross that we can stand before you today. And as we have just read with the psalmist, we recognize that those who are far from you shall perish, and those who are near to God, those who have made the Lord God their refuge, will by faith be saved. Lord, we, we pray for our brothers and sisters in countries like those in the Central African Republic who are attacked weekly simply because they believe in Jesus. We also lift up believers in Somalia, Syria, in China, in Iraq, who face constant oppression, daily persecution, and great loss because they desire to follow you. As we have just sung, we pray that we can join these believers in declaring that you are our strength for today and our bright hope for tomorrow. For great is your faithfulness, O God. Lord, we pray for our neighbors, both locally, lo locally and globally, who have yet to trust in the name of Jesus. And we pray with the psalmist, may we tell of all your works that the nations hear of your saving grace. For all of us that are listening online or gathered here in person, we ask that you guide us this morning. However this week might have looked, that we, we seek you, our light, to be nursed by your word and to be equipped boldly to be able to proclaim to the ends of the earth your glory. For your glory and the power of Jesus' name we pray, amen.
Amen. Amen. If this is your first time joining us, we have been journeying through a series entitled Becoming His Church. We've been going through the book of Acts. We started this up in January, and we witnessed how Luke records the birth and development of the church, of his church. And where we last left off in Acts, Luke records how the early church responded to opposition. And they responded in the most peculiar and most beautiful ways. They prayed together. And God answered their prayer by giving them more signs, more opportunities, more boldness to proclaim the gospel message of Jesus. And this is something we talked about earlier. It would make so much sense for it to end here in this narrative, in the middle of chapter five. The main characters were already introduced. The plot had thickened. The hero intercedes. And finally, the happy conclusion The leaders were freed from their first imprisonment. God graciously protected his church and the people were getting healed of their sicknesses and afflictions left and right. Everything was on course for the happy ending, for the resolve. The plot seemed to have this favorable resolve and the ending credits should have begun. But instead of a sunset ending, we see a second wave of hostile opposition. And certain questions seem to commonly come up. Some audiences might ask, what did they do to deserve this second wave of punishment? What did they do wrong? What bad actions did they do to earn all this punishment? And you see, we we live in a world of We can call them incentives and deterrents. Word in another way, many people in our world believe that good things happen to good people. And if you want, you can even write, bad things happen to bad people. I'm sure you've heard this phrase before. We see this kind of concept seen in Eastern religions, this this belief in karma that a person's actions decide their future fate. In some ways, it's kind of this cosmic understanding of cause and then a future effect. If I do A, then B will happen. Thus, if I do good, good things, if I have good will, that good will will be rewarded back to me. And if I do bad, I will receive a deterrent, a punishment in the future for doing these bad things. And there are several quaint elements about this philosophy, this kind of equation, but there are too many questions left unanswered to trust this philosophy. One of the most popular unanswered questions is, why then does bad things happen to good people? Because certainly bad things occur to people who do not deserve to be punished. In fact, we see this in John chapter 9, Uh, In the Gospel according to John, there's this man born blind. And if you are familiar with the story in John 9, the disciples, they're walking along with Jesus, and they notice over there that there's this man born blind. And listen to what they say. They ask Jesus, who sinned? Was it this man or his parents that he was born blind? Before Jesus gives this man sight, Jesus answers his disciples and told them, 
it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. You see, even during Jesus' ministry, many people believed that this blind man was born because he was being punished for something he did or something his parents did. And Jesus has to correct them. And he tells them that he is not blind because of his sin nor his parents' sin, but he was born blind, again, so that the works of God might be displayed in him. And in a somewhat similar way, we're going to witness how this next hostile wave of persecution was never earned by the church because of sin, but because, get this, they earned this wave of persecution because of their faithfulness in God. Sounds very strange, but I want you to stick along with me. This concept of God permitting persecution to his faithful church it seems very off-putting for many. Definitely seems illogical. But as we've seen since the beginning of Acts, when we started this in January, God's plan for his church is unfolding. God used signs in service to the gospel being proclaimed. The early church sees this sign, the sign of persecution, and it's a confirmation for them that they're right where they need to be, doing the very thing that God wanted them to do. They understood their mission to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. They understood what it meant to face persecution worshipfully, and they understood that they needed to face escalating persecution so that the works of God might be displayed in them. Therefore, as the church's ministry flourishes, opposition arises. And here in this text, what we're going to see is that God's apostles, the 12, are judged before the high priest and his council. The title of the sermon this morning is Dealing with Opposition. And again, we're going to be in Acts chapter 5, verses 17 through 42. And this morning, I only have two points. The first point begins with the gospel enrages the proud. Therefore, believers must obey God relentlessly. Relentlessly. One of the biggest obstacles that keep people from welcoming the gospel, the message of Jesus him crucified, the, the, the thing that stops them, that hinders them from accepting this message of truth is pride. And there's many different forms of pride. Uh, the first one is, for some, they struggle with intellectual pride. It's intellectual pride that keeps them from accepting the gospel message. Uh, and it's because the, the message of the gospel just sounds foolish. And it risks their intellectual standing amongst their peers. Besides intellectual pride for others, it's a sense of moral pride. They don't want to risk sounding like they're in need of God's help to do good things in life. That it would risk saying that they're doing wrong and they're morally corrupt and that they actually need help to do right in this world. Besides intellectual pride and moral pride, it could be social pride. For, for many more people, this is the harder one. 
it is this sense that the gospel message is too dangerous because it will affect their social standing and it will risk their power and their influence. And sadly, it could even be a relational pride, very much connected to social pride, where they recognize that accepting the gospel message would jeopardize their relationships. Maybe it's with family, friends, or it could even risk shaming their family name. In the text this morning, we're going to see how each of these pride issues will grow, in a sense, crescendo the opposition's response to the gospel message. It starts off with jealousy here in the beginning of the text, which moves into frustration. And this frustration grows to rage against the gospel and those who are in gospel ministry. We saw in the previous chapter how Peter and John were previously arrested because the captain of the temple and the Sadducees were greatly annoyed because they were teaching and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. But here, within verses 17 through 40, we see two more arrests. This time, the text tells us in verse 29 that it was Peter and the apostles who were arrested. And this kind of implies uh, that instead of just Peter and John, that it was the majority of the apostles, majority of these leaders of the church, if not all of them, that were placed in the public prison. And this first arrest, Luke records, is driven by their jealousy against them. So the question remains, why would the high priest and the Sadducees be filled with jealousy? It seems as though there are three possible reasons for their jealousy. The first possible reason that they're jealous of the apostles is that the message of the apostles continues to thrive in the popularity of Jerusalem on their home turf. Another possible reason is signs and wonders of the apostles continue to show up. God continues to work in mighty ways, in ways that the Sadducees did not even believe because they didn't believe in these miraculous signs. The third other possible reasons that these, these leaders within the temple are upset at these leaders in the church is just sheer, utter disobedience They didn't heed the Sanhedrin's warning earlier not to preach. They're still preaching. How dare they? And it seems clear that Luke has explained that both the Sadducees and the Pharisees feel as though their authority is being challenged. So they were so consumed with jealousy that they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. As we explained on Wednesday night, This concept of the public prison was to make a visible spectacle of their prisoners. It was communicating to the public their dominance over the outlaws. In verse 23, Luke also indicates that the Sanhedrin, they took an extra measure of securing these apostles. Not only was the prison securely locked, but they also placed multiple guards standing at the doors of the prison. And if you have your Bible still open, I want to direct your attention to verse 19. Luke records that an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out of the prison. And I don't want you guys to miss the irony of this. What happens in verse 19? 
First, the public prison was supposed to flaunt the Sanhedrin's upper hand. It was supposed to flaunt their control. It was supposed to show off their dominance over the apostles. And yet here in the text, we see their bewilderment, their helplessness. They, they didn't even know that the apostles had been free when they convened the next morning. Secondly, it's interesting that God used an angel to open the prison doors, to bring them out and give them instructions. Earlier in Acts, God used a sound, like a mighty rushing wind. He used common men to speak languages they had never learned to communicate the mighty works of God. He also used Peter and John, two common men, to miraculously heal and proclaim the saving message of the gospel. And yet here, during the night, God uses the very thing that the Sadducees did not believe in. Angels. God used an angel to free these apostles. So much irony here. The angel told the apostles to go and to stand in the temple and to speak to the people all the words of this life. They were instructed to do the very thing that wound them up in prison. And for some, this seems very counterproductive especially at first glance. But out of their unflinching obedience, out of their bold faith, they left the prison. They entered the temple at daybreak, since the temple was closed at night, and they began to teach the next morning. What did they teach? They taught about this new life that God has provided through the blood of Jesus. One pastor, I love how he comments on this. He says, God frees them physically in order to free others spiritually. So again, completely unaware of what had taken place the night before at the public prison, the high priests and those who were with him called together the council and the senate in the morning. And this is referring to that same governing body of the people of Israel. They wanted to interrogate the apostles for their disobedience But when they had sent officers to go and retrieve these prisoners, they returned empty-handed. And they simply reported, we found the prison securely locked. Literally, the prison was found being closed with all security. And the guards were still standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Both the captain of the temple and the chief priests were greatly perplexed. The tense of this verb indicates that they were ongoingly perplexed, possibly asking questions like, how could this be? Who could have helped them since they didn't believe in God's supernatural intervention? What will this come to? Interestingly enough, Luke records that an unnamed witness, an anonymous witness came and told them that they had located the prisoners and they were standing in the temple and teaching the people. So the captain, who was the second in command to the high priest, he had the sole duty of keeping order within the temple. So he and the officers went to go and bring the apostles back to the council's chambers. And notice in verse 26, they did not use force. They went peaceably because they were afraid of being stoned by the people. This could apply a a few things. One of them is that this could imply that it was common for them to use forceful tactics to obtain prisoners in ways that the people, the public, frowned upon. 
At a minimum, it communicates the leadership themselves were viewed with disapproval to the point that they themselves feared a public execution by stones if they mishandled the apostles. Remember, the the apostles, as well as the church, had gained ongoing favor with the general populace. We see that in chapter 2, verse 47. And so do not miss another point of irony in this passage. There are several of them. The Sanhedrin wanted prominence and favor with the people. They wanted to stamp out the apostles' message. They wanted to muzzle the apostles from ever teaching about Jesus again. And verse 33 even tells us that they wanted to kill these apostles. But instead, they feared for their lives because the people had found favor with the apostles. They found favor with the message of Jesus, the resurrection from the dead, and they found favor with the church. So what did they do? So they were arrested once more. They were brought before the governing council, and they were tried once again by the high priest, saying, You have blatantly disobeyed our authority. Like a cup filled to the brim, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. And you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. This last phrase is an idiom expressing that it was the high priest. They were expressing that it was the high priest himself that was responsible for Jesus' death. And he must be on trial himself. Bear in mind that this is the ruling council who sentenced Jesus to be crucified, to be killed by hanging him on a tree just weeks before. Also take notice that the high priest didn't even want to utter Jesus' name and instead referred to him as this man. One New Testament scholar points out that there is no mention made of the escape which is an embarrassment for the leadership. How did they get out? Were the guards irresponsible? The answers to these questions might be too revealing, and so they were not raised. The high priest knew their failings. The high priest knew their weaknesses. He knew their loss of control over this whole fiasco. He knew the apostles were a dangerous threat to his council's authority. So how do the apostles respond? Now, I want you to remember, the apostles were not forced to come before the council. The apostles willingly appeared before the council because they were convinced that God was in complete control of the situation. Their release from prison the night before was just another sign that they were right where they needed to be doing the very thing that God instructed them to do. So again, why did they go before the council? Why would they risk another prison sentence? Why would they risk another death sentence? Peter and the apostles were not going to turn down an opportunity to share the gospel. One of my old mentors, uh, he used to tell me, take every opportunity to make Christ known. And that's exactly what Peter and the apostles were doing. That's exactly what they were instructed to do. And that's exactly what it meant for them to continually, steadfastly, and relentlessly obey God. They were instructed by Jesus 
under Jesus' authority to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that Jesus had commanded them. They were instructed, Acts 1.8, that they were going to be his witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So they were threatened with multiple threats by the Sanhedrin to stop teaching, to stop witnessing about Jesus, the resurrection of the dead. And so what do the apostles do? How do they respond to the threatening accusations to the authority of the high priest and his council? Don't miss this. They preached the gospel to them. As we're sweeping through these verses, look at verse 29. It was Peter and the apostles who stood before the high priest and his council. They witnessed to them, possibly the 71. The apostles witnessed to them the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Luke records the Sanhedrin's response to the gospel in verse 33. He says that when they heard this, they were enraged. It's this word picture of being sawn in two. They wanted to kill them. And in verses 34 through 39, we see a man named Gamaliel attempting to assuage them, assuage this enraged group by offering wisdom through this pragmatic argument. Now, because Gamaliel is a revered Pharisee, Gamaliel is a teacher of the law because he is held in high honor by all the people. He was able to give orders to put the apostles outside so that he could talk to the council in private. And it would seem for a little while, this this phrase that he uses, it would seem that it communicates his confidence that it wouldn't take him too long to sway the court. His argument was simple. This new movement can be assessed. It can be measured by its staying power. It would seem that Gamaliel's wisdom was well-received, but it wasn't compelling enough to stop the leaders from brutally assaulting the apostles and charging them again not to speak in the name of Jesus. And then they let them go. About four months ago, I read a report of thousands of new Christians in Central African Republic who had to flee their homes because of rebel attacks upon their villages. They destroyed their homes and assaulted anyone who opposed them simply for being Christian converts. One report captures the testimony of a man named Emmanuel Dunia. The report reads, he was driven from his home after Seleka rebels attacked his village, burning his home and sexually assaulting his wife in front of him. His sons were killed in cannon fire and he was also tortured. Since living in a refugee camp, Emmanuel has struggled with his health and access to the necessary medications that has been very limited. Recently, with the help of a Christian organization, Emmanuel received the prescriptions he needed and his peace has been restored. In an interview, Emmanuel comments on his situation. I want you to listen how he responds to his situation. In the interview, he says, My joy is immense. May the name of God be praised. Thank you. Today I have peace in my heart, he said. And get this, 
What comforts me the most, this is what Emmanuel say. what comforts me the most is the word of God. In our camp, we never stop meeting to share the word of God. Church, this right here is what it looks like to deal with opposition, with joy, with a desire that God's name be praised, with a deep need and sense of comfort from being together in the church family around God's word. Again, my first point is the gospel enrages the proud. How should believers, I'm speaking to believers, how should believers respond to this brutality, to this rage? Brothers and sisters in Christ, let us hold fast to the apostles' confession that we must obey God rather than men. There was no safer place for these apostles to be. There was no greater joy than to be on trial before the same authorities that interrogated Jesus. And as we'll see in the final two verses of this text, there was no greater honor than to be found worthy enough to be persecuted for the name of Jesus. Church family, despite the threats of proud men, despite the hostility towards the message of the gospel, I urge you, obey God relentlessly. The second and last point that this passage addresses is the gospel emboldens the faithful. So therefore, believers are enabled to rejoice in Christ unceasingly. Unceasingly. Church historian Justo Gonzalez records this third century martyrdom to Perpetua and Felicitas who experienced unspeakable joy despite their suffering. Under the rule of Emperor Septimus Severus, Christianity and all other religions, were, they were permissible. As long as, so all religions could keep on doing what they're doing as long as they made one compromise. As long as they worshipped their sun god, as the supreme God. So you can keep on worshiping your gods as long as you worship our sun God as supreme over your God. Other religions, they compromised, but there are Christians who could not do this. There are Christians who could not worship any other God. So because of this, Severus, according to historical records, outlawed Christianity and sentenced all who professed Christ to be put to death. And so during his notorious reign, persecution was at an all-time high as the, as the message of Christianity continued to spread and grow within the empire. And there was this emphasis on persecuting new converts to Christianity and Christian teachers. So roughly in 203 AD, there's this record of five new Christian converts who were arrested. What did this group compose of? There was three who were only teenage boys and there's also a record that the other two people was one, a nursing mother named Perpetual and a pregnant woman named Felicitas. They were found guilty for their recent conversions. Ultimately, because they were disobeying the emperor's new edict, what's crazy is that it seems like they didn't 
want to torture them. They wanted them to make the compromise so they didn't have to have their hands bloodied. The judicial process was intentionally drawn up for this long period as authorities desired prisoners for themselves to renounce their faith in God. Even Perpetua's father came to her cell and begged her to recant her faith. In her diary, she records this conversation she had with her father, telling him that she had the name of Christian and this could not be changed. After Felicitas gave birth in her cell, her prison guards mockingly asked her how she could handle being thrown into the arena of wild beasts. And Felicitas answered, Now my sufferings are only mine, but when I face the beasts, there will be another who will live in me and will suffer for me since I shall be suffering for him. Records tell us that the three teenage boys who didn't recant their faith, they were thrown into the arena first and two were killed instantly. The other boy was killed slowly by a leopard. After these three boys were killed, the two women, Perpetua and Felicitas, were then placed in the arena with a crazed bull. This historian writes, having been hit and thrown by the animal, Perpetua asked to be able to retie her hair. For loose hair was a sign of mourning. And this was a joyful day for her. According to these records, her joy, her boldness enraged those in the arena And this impatient crowd couldn't take it. They couldn't handle her joy. So they demanded for a more prompt death than the bull could offer. So these two women were then lined up with other Christians and killed by the sword. It would have made sense for the apostles to feel crushed, defeated, even doubtful. They have just been arrested twice in a matter of 24 hours. They have been imprisoned. They have been on trial before the governing authorities. And they have been assaulted by them. In fact, historically, this beating that we see here in verse 40 consisted of 39 lashes using this triple-ended strap of leather whipped across the chest and the back. There are records that many men have died from this form of a warning. With every threat, with every beating, with every arrest, it would have been logical that they respond with fear, with anger, with frustration, a sense of self-pity, pain, regret. And yet Luke records that when they left the presence of the council, they were rejoicing. Why in the world would they be rejoicing? Look at verse 41. They were rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus. I'm reminded of a passage in Revelation 12 that says that they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony for they loved not their lives even unto death. How is it that these apostles were able to overcome the rage of the evil one? It was by the blood of the lamb. 
and by the word of their testimony. I've said this very often, but I'm going to say it again. How shallow it is to understand that the Christian life is solely about comfort, prosperity, delusions of grandeur, how destructive that false gospel message is for churches who experience persecution for their faith and rarely get the chance to have comfort of even gathering together publicly for worship. But one pastor beautifully comments and he says, but what a comfort Acts 5 must be to the suffering church in North Korea, in Somalia, in Iraq, in Syria, in Sudan, in China, and in so many other places that remain hostile to the gospel. And it should also be of great encouragement to those who continue to be mocked, shunned, intimidated, and shamed here in the West. If you find yourself suffering as a Christian, he says, rejoice. You're in good company. Luke finishes this section by explaining what their joy looked like. In verse 42, it records that they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Before that, he records the frequency and the proximity of their joyful teaching and preaching. It was every day. It was in the temple and from house to house. They were unceasing in their joy because they had the honor of suffering for the name of Jesus, their Savior. And a word of caution, this is not a sermon encouraging to seek out ways to suffer for Christ. Suffering for Christ does not make you a superior Christian. Suffering for Christ does not win you any medals in heaven. And suffering for Christ is not something that we try to pursue and seek out on our own. But when we do find ourselves, and I mean each and every one of us will experience some degree of suffering in, our, in this life. When we find ourselves suffering for Christ, we have an opportunity to experience a unique, a deep joy that cannot be quenched, a joy that cannot be destroyed, and a joy that cannot be shaken. The only reason why Christians are able to have this joy in suffering is because Jesus took the ultimate suffering for us. That's what gives us joy because he died and suffered for our sin on the cross. He paid for it in full. That's what gives us joy to share in suffering. The only reason why these apostles could experience freedom in a prison is because Christ's blood had set them free from the prison of sin. This is a freedom that the proud, the hostile unbeliever will never experience without Christ. Where the gospel enrages the proud, the same gospel emboldens the faithful. Because only in the gospel is there new life in Jesus Christ. While I Baptist family, brothers and sisters in Christ, I urge you rejoice in Christ unceasingly. So here in this conclusion section, I always try to make a point to make sure that every group here, either online or in person, that you guys are being addressed. And so first, for those of you who are new, those of you visiting with us this morning, if you have never placed your faith in Jesus, 
if when we talked about how the gospel enrages the prideful, you're starting to recognize that you are part of that group, that you're part of the one that gets upset because of the gospel message, because of gospel ministry. I only have one application point for you. If you see your need in Christ this morning, turn to Christ. Only through faith in Jesus Christ can you be saved. And the title of this sermon this morning is Dealing with Opposition. And yes, this title is referring to Christians dealing with the opposition of hostile man. But for you, unbeliever, for you, non-Christian, with as much love in my heart, you must understand the fact that without faith in Jesus, you are considered an enemy of God. You are considered the one who opposes God because of your sin. If you're listening this morning and you have not placed your faith in Christ, how will you deal with your opposition against God? I want to help you this morning. If that is you this morning, Romans 5.8 tells us that God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Scripture tells us that the only way that you can deal with opposition against God, the only way that you can experience the love that saves sinners, the only way that you can obey God, the only way that you can have an endless joy is to repent and turn away from your sin. Turn to Jesus. You must trust and believe that Jesus died for your sin on the cross, that he suffered in your place, saving you from your sin. Only through Jesus can you deal with your opposition to God. For those of you in another category, for those of you who are believers, uh, whether a faithful Christian or a failing Christian, I want to again urge you to obey God relentlessly. Perhaps you have relented in your obedience to God because you're struggling. Maybe you found yourself failing, even drowning in your sin. Failing Christian, this message is for you as well. Failing Christian, I want to encourage you that your obedience does not come from your own strength alone. Remember, Christ has perfectly obeyed in our place on the cross in order to give us new life in him. And it is because he has given us God's Holy Spirit that we have his strength to walk obediently. It is because he has given you his church community that we have his body to walk together in obedience. And I want to encourage you, trust in the gospel. Trust in the blood of Christ. Trust in the gift of his Holy Spirit. If you're a believer, trust in, lean in to his church community. That's how we obey God relentlessly. If you're looking for a place to lean in, a place to grow in Christian community, come talk to me. We have many opportunities for you to be in Christian community, to grow. One of them is small groups. Come talk to me. We want to get you plugged in. We want you to make sure that we're growing together in faith. We would love to connect with you. And then finally, believers, brothers and sisters in Christ, this message isn't simply a message of obedience, but also a message of experiencing unceasing joy in Christ. So I want to urge you, be emboldened by the gospel message by rejoicing in Christ unceasingly. Maybe you haven't experienced 39 lashes for your faith. 
but you've been shunned by your family. You've lost once dear friends because of your faith in Christ. Maybe you have been mocked or shamed in your office or your classroom simply because you profess Christianity. Christian, if this is you, if you're experiencing suffering, I want to encourage you to rejoice. You're in good company of hundreds and hundreds of years of faithful men and women who have been threatened, who have been beaten, burned, flogged, who have been skinned, who have been beheaded, who have been impaled, drowned, beaten to death, and terrorized for their faith. So the familiar question remains, will the suffering be worth it? Christian, you will never regret suffering for the name of Christ. Rejoice in Christ unceasing. This is what it means to be emboldened by the gospel message. This is what it means to experience unceasing joy in Christ. This is what it means to deal with opposition and this is what it means to become his church. Praise God.